the phrase, in God we trust, is the official motto of the United States. It still largely remains popular among Americans. However, the question must be asked, do we really trust in God? And if we do, what does it look like to trust in God? And, and if we're on the fence, why do we need to trust in God? Isaiah 8 is going to give us some answers to these questions. Now open your Bible, if you haven't already, to Isaiah chapter 8. That should be on page 522 in the Pew Bible. When you find that, I'm just going to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'll read the entire chapter, but we're just going to look at a few verses tonight. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony. Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jeberachai, and I approached the prophetess. She conceived and gave birth to a son. The Lord said to me, name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my mother or my father... The wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and have rejoiced in Rezin and the son Ramelia, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates River, that is, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep onto Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach as far as the neck, and spread of its wings will fill the expanse of your land, Emmanuel. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. And listen, remote places of the earth, get ready, yet be shattered. Get ready, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will fail. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For so the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me, not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You're not to say it is a conspiracy regarding everything this people call a conspiracy. And you're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord God of armies whom you are to regard as holy, and He shall be your fear and He shall be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary both to the houses of Israel and He will be a, rock, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. I will wait eagerly for Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. And if they do not speak in accordance with this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land dejected and hungry. It will turn out that when they're hungry, they will become enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. The title of the message is, In God We Trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. We rejoice tonight in the opportunity to gather together to study your word. Lord, what a privilege is ours to be able to, to gather in such a nice place so freely without fear. 
to study your word, to read your word, to to openly declare we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ without fear, without compulsion, without really any worries at all. Father, what what grace you have poured out upon us, what a mercy you have given us in this. Father, tonight as we have come out, we are in need of you. Father, we need you to to challenge us and encourage us through your word. We need you to send your Holy Spirit to make the word living and active in our hearts and our lives. Father, we want to trust you. That's why we're out. That's why we're here tonight. We didn't gather to check a box so that we could say we went to church in the middle of the week. We gathered to meet with you, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, to know you better, to love you more. So, Father, tonight, let your Holy Spirit do these works in our life. Let him strengthen us. So that we can stand against the wiles of the enemy. Let him encourage us. So that when the the discouragements of the world come upon us. We'll still be able to stand strong. Let him give us hope. So that when things that are happening tempt us to despair. We will trust in our God. Father, let your Holy Spirit take the word and work in each one of us. to, To sanctify us and purify us. And make us more and more like Jesus than we were before we came in. Work powerfully in our midst tonight. Renew our hearts. Renew our minds. Have your way. We ask in the beautiful name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So, a recap. Notice in verse 1, Isaiah is to write this message in ordinary letters. This means the message was to be understood by everyone. Then there is a a repetition throughout the passage. In verse 1, the Lord said. In verse 3, the Lord said. In verse 11, the Lord spoke. Uh, And so and in verse five, the Lord spoke. And so what we're seeing is the Lord gave Isaiah a message. He told Isaiah to write the message in ordinary letters, the letter of the common people, so that they were all meant to hear it or to see it, to understand it and be able to apply it. So what we have for us is we have a message from God. We are all meant to understand and we are all meant to be able to apply. Now, Isaiah is going to have a son with a unique name. In some ways, the Isaiah son is a fulfillment of the prophecy given in Isaiah 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and she shall name him Emmanuel. Uh, At the very least, the son is a prophetic sign similar to what is prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14 through 16. Right, the sign is there would be a son who would born, and before he was old enough to really choose good or to choose bad, that the, the people that... The king Ahaz was afraid of, the the people of of Syria and of Samaria, that those kingdoms would be conquered. So the promise here is very similar. Isaiah is going to have a son. Before Isaiah's son is old enough to say, Mom or Dad, the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria would be carried away. In other words, those two countries would be conquered and they would be kind of desolate by Assyria. This is both a fulfillment of God's prophecy in Isaiah 7, 15 and 16. And it's a fulfillment of the Assyrians agreement with Judah. Right. Judah, King Ahaz, had made an agreement with the king of Assyria. And he said, basically, we will be your friends if you will become our friends. And, and in being our friend, what we need you to do is we need you to stop um, Syria and Samaria from coming to attack us. So the king of Assyria agreed to this and he said he would do it. But God had also said this would be something that would happen if Ahaz would just trust God. But then we see in verse 5 through 8, Assyria 
would not be the savior of Judah that they hoped they would be. While they would save Judah in this moment, they would eventually, they would turn on Judah. Uh, This won't be a surprise to God. This uh, would be a fulfillment of God's prophecy to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 17 through 25. God told Ahaz, if he made an agreement with Assyria, this is what would happen. They will turn on you and they will conquer you. And we're told that this is exactly what is going to happen here. They are going to to turn on Israel. So this or turn on Judah. So this is a fulfillment of God's promise. This is because the Assyrians are not good people. And it is also in part an, an act of God's judgment upon his own people. So the question would arise, why would God bring judgment on his own people? Why would God turn Assyria on Judah? Well, God gives us the answer in, in verse six. We're told they rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. This means they had trusted in Assyria and not God. God told Ahaz in the first part of Isaiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 9 that the plans of Samaria and the plans of Syria, they would not stand. That all they had to do was just trust God and God would ensure that what they were trying to do would not come to pass. But Ahaz had rejected God's word, and he had chosen to instead make to trust in Assyria and to make a treaty with them. And so God was going to show them the consequences of this actions. Not only had they rejected God, but they had also rejoiced in in resin. They had rejoiced in the son of Remelia. And, And what this means is this doesn't mean they had rejoiced as in they had loved them and they had found comfort or security in them. Rather, they had rejoiced in the misery Syria and Samaria was going to endure By the Assyrian victory over them. When the Assyrians conquered, it was always significant. They they didn't win by a little, they won by a lot. And they made miserable for those who had conquered them. And as Assyria would conquer Syria, then Judah looked at it with pleasure in their hearts at the destruction and the misery that was being inflicted upon them by the people they made the agreement with. But rejoicing in their defeat was contrary to what God had told them in the book of Proverbs. God said... Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart rejoice when he stumbles. Otherwise, the Lord will see and the Lord will be displeased and he'll turn his anger away from your enemy. So he had done that. Also, part of their rejoicing in what was happening to Syria was the fact that Ahaz's plan had worked. Ahaz had made a treaty with Assyria. Assyria had come in and they had conquered them. And this was all according to what Ahaz planned in his own mind, according to what he thought should happen. Huzzah, everything worked his way and he was rejoicing in this. But again, the problem is God told him specifically, don't make this treaty. Trust me. And so Ahaz, in a sense, is not only rejoicing that it worked, he is rejoicing in a way that kind of communicates, I didn't need God. I was able to figure this out all on my own. The human heart is always looking for ways to solve their problems without looking to and without trusting in God. And that was going to have consequences. And since Assyria or since Judah had trusted in Assyria and not in God, God was going to turn Assyria onto Judah. Judah would or Assyria would come to Judah and would conquer it. Right. It was going to be an overwhelming Conquer, right? They would 
In verse 7, it said they would rise over its channels, go over its banks. It would sweep over to Judah, overflow and pass through. And it would reach from here and spread to there and fill the expanse of the land. So God uses the picture of a flood. When a river overflows and flows everywhere and goes into everywhere and destroys everything. That's the picture. That they would come in and when Assyria came in, they weren't going to conquer a town. They weren't going to take a section of Judah. They were going to take it all. And from one end of Judah to the other, it would be filled with Assyrians and the Assyrian army. Then in verse 9 and 10, we're told that even though God was going to use Assyria to punish Judah, Assyria was not going to get away with their iniquity. God was going to punish them because they were wicked in their own right. God would bring punishment on them. They would try to fight against it. They could get ready. They could make a plan. But their plans would fail. Their proposals would not stand. And despite all of their preparations, they would be shattered. Now, after giving Isaiah all of this, the Lord then turns to Isaiah in a very specific way. And he gives him a very personal message. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 22. And essentially what God is saying is, since everything I've told you in what we have, verses 1 and 10 is true, here's what you're to do, Isaiah. And in the, the, the key part of it is, Isaiah is not to do what the rest of Judah had done. Isaiah is to trust God and remain faithful to God. Now the order of that is important. What led to Judah's unfaithfulness was the fact they did not trust God. Ahaz simply did not believe God himself could stop Syria and Samaria. But he believed he believed Assyria could. Because he did not trust God, he was not faithful to God, and he led his people away from God. Isaiah is to do the opposite. He is to trust God. And as long as he trusts God, he will be able to remain faithful to God. God's message to Isaiah then is his message to us today. We must trust God if we're to be remain faithful to God. Like Isaiah, we live in a culture which has chosen not to trust God. And their lack of trust in God is seen in the perpetual unfaithfulness to God. We live in a culture that has come up with their own plans and they rejoice when their plans work because it shows they do not need God in their day-to-day life. And if we are going to remain faithful to God, in God we trust must be more than a phrase on our money. It must be the way we live our lives. It must not be just something we say should be seen by the populace, but it must be something that is in our hearts. And this passage shows us three ways to trust God so we'll remain faithful to God. We looked at one last time. Uh, We trust God. When we trust God, we listen to God. Verse 11, the Lord spoke and told him how to live. And he was not to walk in the ways of the people. Verse 19, he was not to seek God a worldly counsel. And then in verse 16 and 19, he was to recommit himself to God's word. Right? When God has spoken, that's what we see in this passage. Are we listening? Are we trusting? Listening to God is more than just hearing His words. Trusting God and listening to God is hearing and heeding. And so we do those things there. And that brings us to the the one we're going to look at tonight. When we trust God, we focus on God. When we trust God, we focus on God. 
So much of our lives is determined by what we focus on. Let me show you a picture I like that I think illustrates this truth well. Two guys going on the same journey. One is enjoying the trip. One is miserable in the trip. What's the difference? It's what they're focused on. One is looking at the wall of the mountain and he's depressed. One is looking at the sunset and the mountains and he is happy. What, what is true on this train trip here is true in life. Those who trust in God, they, they focus on God and it enables them to be faithful to God regardless of the circumstances that are going on in the world around us. Now this passage shows us two specific ways to focus on God. First, focus on God's certainties. Right? Focus on God's certainties. Now the wording in verse 12 is amazing. You are not to say it is a conspiracy regarding everything that this people call a conspiracy. And you're not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Isaiah is not to call everything a conspiracy. The people are calling a conspiracy. Now, Isaiah is not to be afraid of these potential conspiracies like the people are afraid of these conspiracies. Now, think about what's going on in the world at this time around them. There is wars and rumors of wars are going on. There is loads of political intrigue as the the kings and the leaders of the nation and even of the religious leaders are wheeling and dealing, trying to work things out for themselves. And, And since there is so much political intrigue, since there is so much wheeling and dealing, the people... The leaders and the king began to see a conspiracy in everything. If anything looks even remotely sketchy, they call it a conspiracy and they become afraid of. Now, as a prophet, as God's prophet, Isaiah, he had delivered God's message to Ahaz, telling him, do not yoke up with Assyria, do not team up with them. And if you do, judgment is going to fall on us because of what you have done. To Ahaz, uh, Isaiah's counsel, or to Ahaz and to his council leaders, and even to many of the regular people in the nation, Isaiah's message, it smacked of treason. How could Isaiah say they weren't to make a political treaty that would benefit them? If if doing this would spare them being conquered by Samaria and Syria, how could they not do it? Sure, the character of the king of Assyria was sketchy. Sure, he was a godless man. But by yoking up with him, it would save them right here. How could you say that was wrong, Isaiah? And on top of that, how could you say that would bring judgment upon us if we do it? Who did Isaiah think he was? To say and speak like this. Who did he think he was to bring this message and have the audacity to say it was from God? God would want them to do whatever it took to survive. God would be pleased with this. So the religious leaders, the political leaders, they did not like Isaiah or his message. And so they began to conspire against him. They were having secret meetings To plan ways to shut him up. The wording seems to indicate Isaiah had found out about them and became somewhat worried. And what God wanted Isaiah to do was trust him and not be afraid of the people and their plans and their schemes. Now, Isaiah likely did not know what kind of plans they were making, what kind of schemes they were 
kind of plotting. But he knew they were trying to shut him up. He knew they wanted him to stop talking and to stop saying this union with Assyria was wrong and judgment would come because of it. But Isaiah, again, he knew they were out to get him. And this thinking caused him to embrace their conspiracy mindset. Might have even become somewhat paranoid. Began to see traps in every interaction he had with other people. And he began to see conspiracies and groups of people who were gathered together. God's message to Isaiah is not to embrace their conspiracy mindset. Don't worry about the possibilities of what could be. Instead, just trust God. Now, our day is very different from Isaiah's. We don't really have much political intrigue. No one in our culture ever really points at stuff and says a conspiracy. But, but can you imagine? Can you imagine if our culture had that sort of a mindset, that sort of conspiracy mindset, how, how relevant this sort of a message would be to us? But we, we don't have that. But, but we do have the other part. We are constantly bombarded with messages telling us of doom and gloom to come. The constant nature of these messages and the certainty with which they're given, right? And what I mean is those who are giving the message are are certain this is going to happen. The next three days, this is going to collapse. They're going to to come for you. They're, They're going to shut this down. That We're going to starve. The economy will collapse. There's something in your arm. Metal will stick to you. It's going to cause your brain and you've got demon DNA because of it. I mean, it's, it's always coming at us. And they're certain this is the way it's going to be. And because it's always there, because it's always coming, and because the people saying it sound so sure in themselves, it can make us start to focus on all of the uncertainties of life. And when we begin to focus on all of the uncertainties of life, we begin to to what if life? What if the economy totally tanks? What if I lose my job? What if the other political party wins big in the midterms? What if something happens to my kids? What, What if? And if you think about it, conspiracy stuff is just a lot of what ifing. What if these powerful and obviously bad people are conspiring together? And if we keep what ifing long enough, we can just about make ourselves hyperventilate with anxiety. But what if we left the what ifs to God? This seems to be God's message to Isaiah. God is telling Isaiah and us, quit worrying about all the things that could happen And just trust me. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount echoes this message. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, I always want to say, Jesus isn't saying in this, don't plan. He isn't saying don't use common sense. Rather, what Jesus is saying is we aren't to be consumed by all of the what ifs of life. God told Isaiah he wasn't to be consumed 
because he was to be different than the people. Right? Because notice the exact wording. You're not to say it's a conspiracy regarding everything that that this people, right? This people is not Isaiah. It is not the people who are devoted to God. It is this people who have turned away from God. So you're not to call everything a conspiracy that that they call it conspiracy. You're not to be afraid to fear what they fear or be in dread of. He's saying, look around, look at them. Do you see how they've adopted the conspiracy mindset? Do you see how they live in fear? You're not to be like them. Simply because you trust me. He is not to call everything a conspiracy. He is not to embrace the the conspiracy mindset. He is not to be afraid on a constant basis like the people are. He is to stand out and be different. Because he has not gotten caught up in these things. He is not driven by fear like they are. And, and Jesus, again, says the same thing. Don't worry then, saying, what are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? What if? What if we don't have food? What if we don't have water? What if we don't have clothing? Jesus says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Heavenly Father knows you have need of these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be provided unto you. The idea here is that those who don't know Jesus, they focus on one thing. The what ifs and the uncertainties of life. And those who do know Jesus focus on something else. Seeking the kingdom of God. We focus on the kingdom of God, seeking the kingdom of God, because we know God is in control. God is in control of the world. God is in control of our lives. God is in control of the what ifs. The world is what if. The world has embraced a conspiracy mindset. Disciples of Jesus are to be different. We are to seek first, to pursue first the kingdom of God. Of God. And people would say, well, that's that's not a normal way to live. That's the point. Of course, it's not the normal way to live. We're not normal. We are disciples of Jesus. We have been born again. We're indwelt by the spirit. We have a hope of a home to come. We believe in a savior who died and rose again. No, we're not to be normal. We're not to be like everyone else. We're to have a different focus in our lives. We do this because we we know we have zero control over the world. We have zero control over our lives. We have zero control over the what ifs of life. Our focusing on what ifs and the uncertainties of these things is useless. Look at what Jesus said. I was afraid I missed it. Anyway, what Jesus said is not that verse. Jesus said Luke 12 25 and 26. And which of you by worrying can add a day to his lifespan? Therefore, if you cannot do very little thing, why do you worry about the other things? We can't add. We can't do anything. Our our worrying doesn't accomplish anything. We, We don't make the what ifs not happen. We don't make the uncertainties not happen. We don't have we, we don't have any control over that because we think about it, we dwell upon it, we worry about it. 
And I'm not sure where I got this, but I once read some statistics when it comes to worry. It said 40% of the time we worry about things that will never happen. How many of us can say, yes, a good portion of what I worry about is stuff that, that never actually comes to pass. I've spent time and effort and thoughts, but it never came to pass, not even remotely. 30% of the time we worry about things we can't even change. How many of the things we worry about can we change? I mean, again, think about things like the economy or the elections. Can we control that? We can't. We, we can't do anything about it. We have zero control over that. So worrying about it, we're, we're worrying about something we can't do anything about. 12%, it says, focuses on criticism we've received. Mostly untrue. And then 10% relate to health issues which get worse as we worry. Not because we, you know, we can't sleep, we can't eat, we stress ourselves out. 8% are legitimate concerns which you can do something about. But, but here's the kicker with this. 8% are legitimate concerns which we can do something about. The reality is, for most people who really give in to these worries and fixate on the what-ifs and everything, we don't spend that 8% doing anything about what we can do. We spend all of our time reading about, fretting about, fearing about all of this stuff we can't fix. And we can't do anything about. We don't even worry about the right things. The stuff we can change, we don't worry about it and do something about it. We choose instead just to set and fret over stuff that has that we can't do anything about. And this is why Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has its own trouble. Enough of its own trouble. We may not like it, but our fretting over the what-ifs of life don't affect anything but us. You and I are far too limited to be able to plan for and control every possible contingency of every what-if we can dream up or every what-if the news media is spinning our way. And this is true whether it's the economy, whether it's terrorism, whether it's gas prices, the safety of our family, Elections, political conspiracies, our health, etc. The hard fact is I'm not in control of this world and neither are you. And that fact will not be changed no matter how much, about, how much we worry about what could happen. Instead of worrying about the what-ifs of life, we must trust the one who is in control of this world. And when we trust God, we focus on God's certainties instead of the world's uncertainties. And then lastly, we focus on God's greatness. Verse 13. It is the Lord of armies whom you are to regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. The way we focus on God's certainties is to focus on God's greatness. It would be easy for Isaiah to focus on any of the things going on around him. There is an invasion coming. I mean, at some point, Assyria is coming. And when they come, it's going to be bad. The consequences will be far-reaching. People will suffer greatly around them. The king doesn't like him. He could worry about all the stuff the king could do to him because he doesn't like him. People were conspiring against him. What might they do? He's basically being labeled a traitor. And of course, in any culture, there are consequences for not... For being considered a traitor. 
because you don't go along with the party line. Any number of other things that could be going on in the world around them. Isaiah could focus on all of those things and fear all of those things. And God's message to him is, is don't. Focus on me instead. Focus on my greatness and my power. And if you focus on my greatness and my power, then you don't have to fear or dread anything else. It is easy to fixate on all of the uncertainties and the what-ifs of life. It is brutally easy to focus our attention on the economy or terrorism or gas prices or the safety of our families or elections or potential conspiracies or our health, or etc. And one reason it's so easy is because we live in a world with a 24-hour news cycle and we live in a world with social media. Between the 24-hour cable news cycle and social media, we are constantly assaulted with messages reminding us of the uncertainties of life. But they're not just saying these uncertainties of life could be there. They're giving us all of the worst-case scenarios of these what-ifs. If we don't do this, the end is sure. And it's just a constant barrage, one thing after another. And what can happen and what often happens is we become so fixated on the uncertainties of life, we lose focus on the greatness of our God. And if we lose the focus on the greatness of our God, our fears and our anxieties over the what ifs grow bigger and bigger until we feel we're about to be swallowed up by them all. For me, I find when I am the most depressed the most discouraged and the most near despair. It is because I have lost focus of the greatness of God and I am fixated on the what ifs and the uncertainties of life. I'm probably not alone in this. Now, we know, of course, we can't avoid the issues of the world. It would be nice. But unless we're going to become hermits, live in caves and places where there's no access to news or social media... Just doesn't seem any way to be any way to avoid being confronted by all of the uncertainties and all of the what ifs of life. But what we can do is face them in a way where we aren't overcome by them. It is possible for us to be aware of what's going on in the world and still have peace despite the turmoil going on around us. This is the power of focusing on God's greatness. Isaiah will learn this, and later he will write, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. To focus on God is to think about him often. To focus on God's greatness is to think about who He is, what He has done, and what He can do. Focusing on God's greatness reminds us that He is in control of the world. He is in control of the uncertainties. And He is in control of all of the what-ifs of our world. And since He is in control, I don't have to be crippled with anxiety or fear. I don't have to be overcome with these things because God, my God, is omnipotent and can handle any issue. 
God, my God, is omniscient and knows about all the uncertainties and the what ifs of life. He knows the outcome before it happens. He knows the end from the beginning. And we trust that nothing that comes up will catch him off guard because he is great. Now, there are several ways we can help ourselves focus on God's greatness. One, read God's word. This is always going to be part of the answer to anything we're going to try to do in our lives is read God's word. We must all be students of God's word. And in doing being a student of God's word, particularly if we're trying to to focus on God's greatness, then we should find passages that talk about the greatness of God. We could read creation where God merely speaks the world into existence. We could go through there and underline God said, and it was so. To remind ourselves, God did not struggle to create the world. He just said there ought to be some stuff, and that stuff came into being. And it did not stress Him out any more than just simply saying there ought to be sun, there ought to be some water. I think stuff like that ought to exist. And boom, it was. And then we could think, how great is my God that He can speak worlds into existence. That where there was once nothing but God, He just thought it and said it, and it came to being. And if my God can do that, oh my goodness, can He handle the what-ifs I read about on Twitter today? We read about the Exodus from Egypt, where God took a stuttering man named Moses and his brother Aaron, and He worked through them to humble and almost crush the most powerful nation in the world. He proved over a nation with a plethora of gods, there was only one God. And it wasn't Ra. And it wasn't the Nile. And it wasn't Pharaoh. It was Yahweh. He was the one true God. And He sits in heaven and He could do anything He wants to do. And I think, my goodness, if my God can get so intimately involved in a nation, He controls what happens, the weather, the stuff that goes on. What can He not handle on that new, that I read about or I heard about on that news media show I watched not that, that made my heart race and going to keep me up tonight? Or we read the life of Jesus. I think particularly the Gospel of Mark. The reason I say Mark Because Mark doesn't detail a lot of the teachings of Jesus. Mark details the actions of Jesus. Jesus did stuff in the Gospel of Mark. He did a lot of stuff. He did powerful stuff. He walked on the water. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He caused the blind to see. He multiplied the food. I mean, he stopped a storm just by saying, peace, be still. And I read about the power of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And I think if if my Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever, and he could do all of that then and he can care for me now, despite whatever this what if is. Then, of course, we could always go to the book of Revelation. We don't have to understand all the jots and tittles of what it says. We just know the big picture. God determines the world ought to be brought to an end and God brings the world to an end. Satan fights against him, but God lo- but God wins. God doesn't lose. That's heresy. God wins. Satan loses. And it's not even a difficult battle for God. There's no intense power struggle where it's iffy at times. And gosh, oh no, Satan's on top. Maybe he's going to win. And then whew, at the end, Jesus pulls out a clutch move and they win. That's not what happens in the book of Revelation. God just does what he wants to do. He brings judgment. He sends people out, and then when he decides it's all over, boom, it's all over. The end. Here comes heaven. Here's new Jerusalem. And we think, wow, 
If my God is sovereign over history to the point that He can bring it to a close at His will, then He is sovereign over this moment in history. And whatever is going to happen in elections or economies or conspiracies, He is greater than all of those and I need not fret. We can also read the Psalms. The Psalms expressed God's greatness in numerous ways. They talk about His glory and His worthiness as the authors worship God. But they also show us saints of God going through the issues like we're going through. They're afraid. They're dealing with the what-ifs. The uncertainties of life are kind of overwhelming them. And they write about their thoughts and their fears and their concerns. They wonder where God is and why He's not acting in a more deliberate and apparent way. And they do it as they write out. They're honest about it. You read it and you think, man, it's not just me. Other people have felt this. But then we also see them come out the other side praising God as they began. Our God is good and trustworthy and He can do all things. And we read that and we say, I'm not the first. This doesn't mean I'm a bad disciple of Jesus or I'm not saved. I'm not the only person who's ever felt this way. God has kept people who felt this way. He took care of them in their time of need. He didn't turn against them when their doubts and their insecurities and their fears came against them. And we're reminded how great our God is. That He doesn't demand perfection out of us because He is perfect Himself. So we read God's Word. Also, make a praise list. And what I mean by make a praise list is a list of ways... God has come through for us in our lives. Prayers, He's answered. Times, He's delivered us. Times, He took care of us in the uncertainties and the what-ifs of life that had stressed us out and beat us down. We also make the list in light of James 1.17, which tells us every good gift we have in our life is given to us by God. So we use this knowledge to make a list of, of all the ways God has worked in our lives, all of the good things God has given us in our life. And as we've written out the list, we use it to praise God, to thank God for what He has done. And doing this reminds us of God's greatness and faithfulness in the past. And it gives us confidence that the God who was great and faithful in the past can be great, will be great and faithful in the present, and will be great and faithful. In the future. And we're reminded of God's greatness far more than we are about the uncertainties and the what ifs of life. And then we pray. One of the ways we focus on God and his greatness is by praying. Specifically, praying about the uncertainties and the what ifs of life causing us anxiety, fear and stress. I love this passage. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything. By prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are constantly being assaulted with messages about the uncertainties and the what-ifs of life. We're constantly being assaulted by the worst-case scenarios of how these things are all going to work out. And even the best of us, no matter how good we try to be, at times... Those messages will begin to get to us. They begin to stress us out. They begin to make us upset. They keep us awake at night. They make us afraid. They make us angry. So we live with just a tense anger all of the time. What do we do in that moment? 
What do we do when these things are getting to us in this way? We take our anxieties to the Lord in prayer. Don't be anxious about anything. Anything is inclusive of whatever's going to be on the news tonight. Anything is inclusive of whatever's trending on Twitter later today. Anything is inclusive of whatever any politician is going to say this week in their speeches. Anything is inclusive of the elections, the midterms that we're going to have in a few months. Anything is inclusive of anything. And so if it's making us anxious, if it's making us fearful, then we take that to the Lord and we pray about it. Plead. I love that's why I love this one reason I love this translation. Pleading. Prayer and pleading. I think for what we're talking about tonight, the pleading is less about God change what's about to happen and more about God help me to focus on you and less on this. God help me not to be so stressed out by these things that I can't control. We pray with thanksgiving, which we've already made our praise list so we can do that. And then after we've prayed, we get to experience the peace of God surpasses all comprehension. It doesn't make sense that we're this at peace in the midst of a world in turmoil. And it guards our hearts and our minds. Now, remember part of the point here, Isaiah, us, we're not to be like the people around us. The world around us right now is anxious. The world around us right now is fearful. The world around us right now is focused on the uncertainties, the what-ifs, the potential conspiracies. They're angry. What stands out and makes us different as the people of God, as disciples of Jesus, being as focused on the uncertainties, the what-ifs, and the conspiracies as they are, being as angry as everyone else in our culture is, being as afraid as everyone else in our culture is, or to have a peace which surpasses all comprehension, guarding our hearts and our minds. This is how we live different. This is how we're not how we don't get caught up in the conspiracy mindset that everyone else is caught up in. How we don't live in fear of what everyone else is in fear of. We're not being dumb. We're not ignoring reality. We're just saying our God is bigger than all of these things. God has taken care of me in the past. He's taken care of me in the present. He'll take care of me in whatever's coming. It's a promise. When we take our anxieties and we give them to the Lord, He gives us His peace. Spending time with God in prayer helps us focus on Him. And it leaves us with a peace in the midst of the turmoil of our world. And it's a peace the world cannot take away. So in God we trust. It is our nation's motto. It is on our money. But is it in our hearts? You know, a lot of people nowadays putting forth a lot of effort to make sure in God we trust is on public buildings. People can see it. But a lot of these people, by the way they talk and the way they live, you can tell it's not in their heart. What good is it? To have in God we trust on everything we can see so that everywhere we go we see in God we trust if none of us are actually trusting in God. What good is it to have in God we trust on every public building if in God we trust is not filling our heart and reigning and ruling in our lives? Is in God we trust in our hearts? 
do our lives show we trust God? Does the way we focus on God and not on the uncertainties, not on the what ifs, not on the conspiracies, does does the way we focus on God and his greatness show indeed we are trusting our great God? May it be so for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and glorious. You are wonderful and worthy. Help us, O oh God, to trust you. Help us to be dependent upon you. Help us to focus on your greatness, Lord, to, to give no place in our minds and our hearts for all of the what-ifs and uncertainties of life. Forgive me when I have allowed those things to overcome me. And guide me that I would keep my focus where it ought to be. Help us, Lord, to be different. The world around us. We'd not be afraid of what they're afraid of. We'd not be calling a conspiracy what they call a conspiracy. But our fear, our dread, our trust, our focus would be on our God who is great and awesome, who rules over the world, sovereign over history, sovereign over our lives. And let us live with such peace the people around us would say, why do you live the way you live? Why do you have the kind of peace that you have? And we can say, oh, let me tell you about a Savior who came. Let me tell you about a God who loved us and who came to earth and died in our place. Let me tell you about a God who saves and fills with His Holy Spirit. Let me tell you about a book that can show you how to live and know and glorify this God. Make us those people we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.